You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome to tfm's books and comic show for star trek and i am just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and i'm so excited to have back christopher jones chris how have you been oh matthew i've been doing okay been hanging in there uh busy with the magazine as always did get a couple of episodes of the ready room out recently not on mic as much as i would like to be but I'm here today, and I had fun reading this book that we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's very exciting. We have a brand new Star Trek book that we are going to be talking about, Living Memory, by Christopher L. Bennett. Uh, This one takes place during the movie era uh, between the motion picture and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So that is a really fun place to be, and there's a lot that goes into this. And what's really great is, you know, honestly, we don't have any news. We don't have any comics to review. Uh, it was, It's kind of been a little bit slow. Um, we're going to be picking up, though. We're going to have some new books coming out throughout the rest of the year, so that's going to be really exciting, setting up interviews with those authors, especially with the new authors we have coming up, like Cassandra Clark, who's doing uh, Shadows Have Offended. So... Uh, don't worry, we're going to be covering it all, and of course Bruce will be back as we're moving through the Typhon Pack series as well as the Lost Years. Uh, before, though, we jump into talking about the book, I definitely wanted to say welcome. We're so glad you're here with Literary Tracks, and of course, you know, make sure you're following us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, because then... You get the show as soon as it drops. So subscribe there. If you're on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate a star rating and review. It definitely still helps people find the show when you do that. Uh, you can also uh, find us on Twitter at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And then, of course, we've got the listeners only discussion group there on Facebook called the Babel Conference, where you can join us uh, and people from all over the world who are listening to TrekFM shows. Uh, and uh, we got to say a huge associate producer thank you. Uh, to the associate producers we have through Patreon. We really appreciate uh, Greg Rosier and Casey Petit for them supporting the network and, of course, making sure that like, Literary Tracks keeps coming to you, but also all the other shows that keep coming to you. So uh, if you like what we do here, Chris, you know, I mean, gosh, Patreon is so important because uh, it's a big network and it costs us a lot of money to put this on every month. Yeah, it definitely does. And uh, we've been struggling with that a bit during the coronavirus year plus that we've all been going through. So definitely we appreciate everybody's support. Thank you so much for helping keep us going through the hard times here as we head into our second decade of podcasting. Absolutely. Like you said, uh, 10 years now, uh, Track FM has been going. So if you want to keep coming, if you want it to keep coming, head over to patreon.com slash trekfm well you know chris i think it's enough preamble i think we should just head into some living memory oh wait matt did you say living memory i i'm sorry i think i read the wrong book i read in living color i thought this was going to be a comedy podcast today (laughs) oh sorry no uh but uh, I think we'll we'll catch you up. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll just try to, to to hang on through this discussion. Then, even though I apparently read the wrong book. So, Chris, as we uh, mentioned earlier, "Living Memory" uh, is a book by Christopher L. Bennett, um, and it is set there between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan, uh, which. You know, I've been wanting more and more books to be set in the movie era because it's just so rich uh, with opportunities to explore these characters and in places that, you know, we haven't seen them a million times like the uh, five year mission. And so and one of the ways that this book really, I think, elevates itself is by 
focusing on a character that does not get a lot of focus in many books, which is Uhura. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this book is all is really going to be about Uhura's history. In fact, we don't know very much about Uhura, and part of that has to do with this the fact that this book deals with, which is she lost her memory because of Nomad, right. uh, that episode there in the original series. And so this book deals specifically with her loss— uh, of her memory and her family because of that and everything that she went through. Uh, and I really appreciated the fact that we finally got basically Ohura's backstory. Yeah, right. Yeah. I went back yesterday actually and watched The Changeling, which is the episode with, with Nomad where he wipes her memory. I had seen it many times, of course, but not in a number of years. And I wanted to just refresh on how that happened because, you know, in the epilogue of this book, Bennett mentions the inspiration for the story. And he talks about how in The Changeling, the wiping of Uhura's memory is treated kind of like a, there is a good bit in the episode because Chapel helps retrain her mind. But it's just sort of like a side thing to the main story of Nomad looking for the creator, right? So... You can tell that it was part of that story, but maybe there wasn't much thought given to what would that mean for her in the long run in her life. And like you said, this book is a great opportunity to explore that and explore what memories mean to us, how they affect our lives, our past and our future, and also give us a little galactic or universe wide mystery, in fact, along the way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I do think that one of the things that um, was was really interesting is the way that Bennett takes the story in the sense that, of course, like you said, the episode does this very classic Star Trek thing, which is to take what happened to Ahura and, and kind of gloss over it. And yet what he's able to do is to show us exactly what this means for a character to have this happen and the repercussions of that happening. And so, you know... I, and it, and it really kind of goes to many of the different themes that happen in the book. But, you know, Ahura ends up kind of taking the easy way out, which is instead of going back to her family, to which she still has an emotional connection to, even though she can't really necessarily understand why, because she doesn't have the memories to go with it. So she avoids that pain by just staying with the Enterprise crew, and they kind of become her family. They kind of become her everything in that way. And yet, by avoiding that pain, she misses out on the full breadth of life in many ways. And and only here in this book does she begin to rediscover that because she's forced to reconnect with her family because of the other mystery that's happening. And in many ways, I, I thought that this was such a fascinating... Uh, connection with star trek 5 where kirk says i need my pain and uhura Mm. instead of facing her pain and going through her pain uh avoids it and that avoidance leads to a character to which uh is not as whole as she could be if she had just embraced that pain and moved forward with it yes an interesting situation for her they do talk in the book about the difficulties of being on a deep space mission and being able to return, say, all the way to Earth when something like that happened. I also think about if she had gone back to Earth and spent probably a considerable amount of time there after her memory was wiped. The aspects of her life that come from her Starfleet service and service aboard the Enterprise after the encounter with Nomad Forward, those would not have happened. So that would further change who she is. So it it does get to be a bit tricky to think about if you make certain decisions and you follow certain paths, how do they affect who you are as a whole? Because often I think when we think about this, we think if we had just made this other decision, then things would be better and we feel like everything that we are, everything that happened from that point to today would still be as it is, but we could have changed this other thing and created a different whole. But in reality, it wouldn't work that way. So, you know, sometimes I have thoughts like this. Yeah, no, I I think you're absolutely right. And obviously, you know, this book really is kind of about the choices we make. Uh, And 
I think, you know, what we see is that Uhura makes this decision to neglect going home and and basically finding herself again, her full self. And I, I thought that this was really interesting because, you know, there's a beautiful reminder here in this book of that we need our memories. We need our history. Mm-hmm. We need what's happened to us. Um, and we need to not just take that easy way out. We need the hard way. We need the pain. We And in many ways, we have to walk the valley to see the mountain views in life, right? And so um, by uh, avoiding that, Ahura, again, is just lost out on something. But there's there's also that sense of like, the experience of our lives is part of what makes us what we truly are and who we truly are. And it's interesting because Ohura, after that moment, isn't truly who she is until this moment of reconnecting with her family and these memories starting to come back to her. And um, it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, in many ways, I think there's a... I think of that small scene in uh, Star Trek Six, where you know they're trying to figure out how they how would they discover you know uh, Chang's ship, you know, and mm. she's like, "Well, what about all that gaseous you know tracking material? We've right. got to have a tailpipe." And it just seems like that scene is such a um, a scene that you know maybe you might not have seen before, but Ahura seems so comfortable in that scene with who she is and these people. But she's more vocal in a way than she's ever been before, really, mm-hmm. in any of the, sh- you know. Um, I even think of uh, in Star Trek Three, where she helps Kirk and them steal the Enterprise, and she just seems yeah. so much more confident in and who she is. And this book, in many ways, I feel like does a great job of kind of helping fill in those gaps as to why she's progressed, you know. And mm-hmm. part of that is that she's decided to take this this difficult road to rediscover everything that she is, um, not just this this part of herself that she kind of made because it was easier than um, the hard road. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point to see her character in the films past the most motion picture and how the events of this book and her finding herself again can influence how she is behaving because it's one of those exercises we have to do sometimes in Star Trek, especially with the original series where we kind of imagine for ourselves how a character's life might've been because we don't really get to learn much about Uhura in the original series or in the motion picture. And then we have this book, the events of this book happen. And then we see her later. It's sort of like, you know, for us, when we go back and we watch Deep Space Nine and we watch those early seasons of Deep Space Nine with the knowledge that Bashir is uh, genetically enhanced. And of course, he wasn't when they were writing that. That came along later. But when you go back and you watch it and you watch it from that angle, you can see all of these things about, okay, well, that's why he's doing this or that's why he's Mm -hmm. acting that way. So you kind of fill in the blanks. So this type of story makes it interesting now to go back and watch Uhura, you know, and watch how she behaves in certain situations before and after these events. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I, I think, and that's the, you know, that's the beauty of tie in fiction. And when it's telling good stories is it helps to do that. It helps to fill in those gaps and it and it helps to bring characters alive in a way that they haven't been before. And 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 I think, you know, in all honesty, this story with Ahura kind of shows why I think I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I feel like I've been right for so many years. Like we need more stories in this time period yeah. because it actually helps us be able to grow the characters in a way that you can't in the five-year mission time period. And so this, you know, Bennett is able to find a way to really add to the character of Ahura that becomes something that would be important for as you move forward. And um, in even kind of, in some ways, can help you as you watch TOS in a way that you couldn't have done if this had been in the five-year mission. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, just... 
it's so neat to see that actually play out. And and in all honesty, I hope that they will then continue to use this as a jumping off point to do more stories like this in the movie era, because I, I honestly think you've just got a better opportunity to write books that have substance rather than just like uh, uh, just kind of rehashing yeah. a time and a, uh, that we already know so much about. There are also some interesting little tie-ins here to they're just little throwaway lines, but the references connecting newer Star Trek with this. There's the line about, oh, I've heard of a Spock. Mm-hmm. You know, what, he was on Pike's ship, right? He was yeah. a lieutenant on, was it Discovery? You throw that in. And there's even a Kelvin one where Uhura says that, yeah, that yeah. was when I was in the yep. academy. And back then I used to wear my hair long and straight. Yeah. Like Zoe and the Kelvin that. films. So those kinds of little connections are also interesting in a way of using fiction that's written in this time period of stories that for us as longtime fans were so long ago, mm-hmm. but yet tying those little threads together to make the overall franchise, the overall canon, maybe a little bit tighter and intertwined. It's kind of interesting, but not doing it in a way where it's like, ah, that's a stretch. You know, it's nothing like that. Yeah, I thought all of those things worked very well, you know, uh, and uh, we're, we're, you know, when you're writing a book like this, you know, those little tidbits what fiction, tie-in fiction, allows you to be able to do, which is great. Let me ask you one question. I'm curious what you think. Sometimes when I read Bennett's stuff, and especially this book, I feel like there are too many references to the original series, events in the original series. You know, remember the time we met that alien and we went to that planet and this little thing, you know? I don't know. I mixed on it. Like, in some situations, it benefits the story, like you need that reference. And then other situations, it just seems kind of like an encyclopedic mm-hmm. dump of uh, tie-in mm-hmm. references to past stories. How do you feel about it? I think I think that's a really good observation. And I do think that that can happen in some of his books. And, and there was a point to which in this book, I was somewhat feeling that. Mm-hmm. Because it was like we, we were just mentioning all of these things that the Enterprise had done. And then when they made the switch that it was Uhura mm-hmm. that it was connected to and not the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the other mystery involved with with exactly what it's all connected to. Um, I think that helped ameliorate that that issue for me. Yeah. Um, because I, I do feel like it was utilized well here. Um, whereas sometimes I do feel like it's just being cute for cute sake sometime. Oh, let me mention this or, you right. know, uh, I, I thought that it worked pretty well, uh, in this book and, and I was glad actually, you know, cause I was absolutely thinking that. And then by the, t- by the time we got to the end, it, I didn't feel that anymore. Yeah. The reference. Yeah. That's pretty much how I feel as well. Early on, I was kind of feeling it. And then later I thought, okay, well. Yeah, it makes sense. So it works. The tie-in to the conscience of the king was really interesting, though, with the Arcturians, Mm -hmm. they're first mentioned in that episode. It's actually the first line of the episode when Kirk says, interesting, and Arcturian Macbeth. And then from that point on, you know, you learn that the Arcturians are really interested in Shakespeare. So Bennett has leverage to that here and even has the warborn Mm-hmm. who we'll talk about soon, I'm sure, take their names from characters in Shakespearean plays. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think the Warborn are, are a fascinating part of this story. And in many ways, uh, what was interesting is that this kind of just felt like Star Trek The Clone Wars um, because we're really dealing with, okay, so what if clones uh, existed in the story Star Trek universe mm-hmm. and you know we we have all these things about genetic engineering and it not being allowed and everything and and so what basically would happen if clones were created and then didn't have a war to be used in what would you do with them mm-hmm. and so that's a great of course ethical question for Star Trek to be asking but I had a I, I will say you know that part of the story although I think fascinating ethically 
was also a little bit too close to a lot of the the elements that the Clone Wars asks mm-hmm. uh, about clones mm-hmm. um, for Star Wars, and it it wasn't quite as interesting for me as it could have been if it if I hadn't already thought about so many of these ideas through the series of Star Wars, the Clone Wars. Yeah. I didn't think of it as much in terms of Clone Wars because I'm not as hooked into that as you are, but it did cross my mind. It also reminds me of the Jim Hadar, keeping it within Star Trek, Mm -hmm. who are Mm -hmm. bred. They age very rapidly. Uh, They're bred to fight for the Dominion. And there's this question of not so much a question of what if there's no war and they're not needed, but this question of can they be more than just that? We get that with right. the Jim Hadar sometimes, right? If if they're allowed to follow their own course, what could they right. be? Uh, do they do they fight because that's just what they know and what they're bred for? Some of them probably would follow that path, and then others might want to do more. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, you know, that is something that uh, Deep Space Nine and the book series also already discovered. Right. I mean, we talked with that Tyranitar is, yeah. is that main character where we really explore that idea of, of can they do something else? And, and I, maybe, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I had forgotten about that. And again, maybe that's one of the reasons where I kind of felt like a lot of these issues had been discussed. But you know, I I did think it was really fascinating the discussion that we have between uh, the characters and and you know they put the Warborn in Starfleet a few of them to see if there might be a way to be able to utilize them and and kind of give them other skills to be able to you know uh, be a part of Starfleet possibly and there was a really interesting ethical question that they ask you know and because somebody challenges them about the the ethical nature of creating a force of people just to you know fight wars and one of the warborn asks you know the the opposite you know is it ethical to force ordinary people to sacrifice their homes and their families and their careers and their very way of life in order to transform themselves into warriors mm-hmm. if you got to fight wars wouldn't it be better to protect ordinary people specifically rather than kind of transforming ordinary people into something that can be hard to tra- transfer themselves back, you know? Right. And in many ways, you know, it, it does create a very interesting ethical question there because we know how difficult it could be for people mm-hmm. to come back from war and to trans- transition back into civilian life. And so yeah. to me, I liked that that question, at least there's no easy answer. Right. And in our own world, of course, the situation of people being drafted into military service and sent off to fight wars and coming back and having to try to reassimilate themselves into society, that has all happened. I have a feeling that in our own world in the future, it's going to be a case where we have created robots that fight the wars. So the people are protected in that sense. They're not Mm -hmm. sent off to fight anymore. But that raises its own set of ethical questions also. Yeah. Bennett's use of the Arcturians in this way, it's interesting because if you go back to the making of Star Trek, the motion picture, the Arcturians were mentioned in the original series, but they appear again in the motion picture and you can see them occasionally in the background, like on the rec deck or in the the um, shuttle bay transport area where we see Kirk arriving. You can see them kind of in the background. But there was more of a backstory introduced or thought about for them anyway by Fred Phillips and Robert Fletcher, who are the people who created the aliens. And what I found interesting is that they made a comment uh, some years later. At the time of the movie, they had already mentioned that there are like 20 billion soldiers ready to fight. They can have an army ready Mm -hmm. to go anytime. But years later, in 2002, in the magazine, they also talked about how they speculated, I should say, that the Arcturians provided the backbone of the Federation infantry. And one reason is that they could clone billions of new soldiers overnight. But what I find interesting Mm -hmm. is they're speculating that the Arcturians are providing the backbone of the Federation infantry. So Bennett has taken that idea that they're the soldiers 
But in this story, they aren't providing the backbone of the infantry at this point. There's a debate right. over, should we utilize them? Like, could they be a part of the right. infantry? Yep. And and Or could they be a part of Starfleet in general? Right, right. And so he's taken sort of an idea that's been around for a long time about this race, and then he's fleshed that out and put a whole ethical debate on top of it. Mm. But the thing about that is you're talking about how it didn't connect with you as much as you think maybe it could have. I think it's a question that doesn't get answered in one novel, especially not a novel that's also focused on sure, another sure. character, right? This is something yep. that it's almost like, okay, if we keep it within books, I could see a series of books, you know, five or six books that are focusing right. on the militarization of Starfleet. And this is one of the issues because, again, in reality, yep. this isn't going to be something that Kirk and Cartwright and this Arcturian commander, uh, what is his name, Rakathema, is that right? Uh, discuss yeah. it's going to take a lot more time to flesh out if you want to mm-hmm. get a real answer as to right. what do you do with a group of people who have been bred to fight and need to find some other uh, way to uh, other path in their life you know that takes a lot more time yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right because, you know, one of the interesting questions that we have here is about, you know, this kind of the, the letter of the law of the, you know, the, basically the religion of the Arcturians and the spirit of the law and that, you know, the Warborn are create, created to protect the Arcturians, right? And only the, the Arcturian people. Um, but if they're part of the Federation, then does that apply to them being able to be in Starfleet and therefore use their abilities as warriors then to protect the larger family that the Arcturians are part of in the Federation. And so that's a very interesting question. And I'm glad that you brought up the whole idea of there's no real good answer in this book. And because the, the, I would say the largest downfall of this book to me is the fact that there's too many stories um, we this book should have been all about the Warborn, or it should have been all about Ahura's mystery, but the two don't connect well enough. Yeah. Now there are yeah. some ways in which some of the thematic elements connect, which is is okay, but I think this this book should have just been all about Ahura and what was going on with her, and put this other story in its own book. And because, like you said, it could actually be like a three book arc. To mm-hmm. really ask this big question, um, neither story is served by the other being there well enough to, I think, legitimize putting both of these stories in the same book. Yeah, yeah, I probably agree with that. The resolution of the mystery of these like vacuum flares that are going on, and when they find out what the connection is to Uhura. And what's really going on. And then they start talking about the universe right after the Big Bang and how these are messages. That was a very interesting idea to me. It reminded me a little bit of some of Stephen Baxter's stuff. But mm-hmm. it was an interesting idea. And I kind of feel like I wanted that to be explored more. So what's happening to Uhura yes. and that, those are completely tied together. So a lot of the time that was spent with the Warborn could have been spent with this bigger idea yep. that would mean they would need to figure it out sooner in so that there's time to then talk about what's going on. But I yes. don't know if I would want that for sure, because if they've solved the mystery too early in the book, then does the book hold together? If they didn't then delve into this whole idea of life evolving, civilizations evolving very rapidly in the aftermath of the Big Bang, and then they're gone. Uh, and that actually reminded me a little bit of Playing God, the DS9 episode, where an entire civilization is like microscopic scale and mm-hmm. comes and goes so quickly, right? Right. I don't know. How, yeah. Would that have worked uh, for you? It, also, as a book? it almost reminded me, do you remember that Simpsons episode, The Treehouse of Horror, where, uh, 
uh, Lisa creates the little um, petri dish. Oh, I think of, so. Yeah, of people. Yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, you know, she's like, oh, one of us is nailing something to the door. Oh, I've created Lutherans. <laughs> it's one of the best episodes of all time for The Simpsons. There's so many great quotes in that, but that's kind of what that reminded me. Of. And I, I think you know, again, you're just absolutely right in the sense that these are fascinating ideas in and of themselves and there's a place to which and you know again the Ohoro story connects obviously with what's happening with this primordial past and these civilizations and the, the reaching out you know and and all of this and trying to connect uh that's great that and again that's a whole book in and of itself the warborn and their struggles is a book all all on its own and so but I will say that structurally, the story is very much like a Star Trek episode in which the Warborn would be the B plot, Uhura would be the A plot. And we would find out at the end that they're receiving these messages from the distant past. And wow, that was an interesting, cool mystery. And then the Enterprise would fly off and next week we would get another story. So in that sense, it is structurally like a classic Star Trek episode. I think you're you have a valid point on on that front, but I also think I would just argue that we're we're also writing a book. Right. We're not writing a Star Trek episode, right. and therefore, um, structurally, the stories themselves don't play well enough, even thematically. There's a there's some tangential connection in the thematic elements mm-hmm. for this for them together, but. It's not enough to legitimize, again, I don't feel like them to be crammed together in a book, especially mm-hmm. since I feel like the biggest problem is is that neither of them is giving the, the time they really deserve. I feel like the page count for either story could be um, ag- exceptional if, you know, it had that much more to to do with that story like i do feel like you could do the entire warborn thing in one book if it had just been the whole book well you definitely could because another connection between that storyline and the uhura storyline is the timing of the story mm-hmm. clearly bennett wants to talk about something that is noticeable in the transition from the motion picture to the wrath of Khan, which is that it appears that Starfleet is taking on a more militaristic identity. And of course, this is a popular debate among Star Trek fans and a popular debate on Twitter sometimes of, is Starfleet a military organization or is it a scientific exploratory organization? And I think it's a bit of both. And I think it kind of has to be a bit of both if you think about the scale on which it operates in galactic terms. But Mm -hmm. the Warborn is a way of discussing the concerns, but maybe the goals on the part of some people in Starfleet and the concerns on the part of others about Mm -hmm. a move towards militarization, which also we see in our own world again, where we feel like some countries at some times seem to be shifting to a more militaristic stance and then at other times they seem to be backing off of it. And, you know, it's changing over time. And if something shifts Mm -hmm. one way or the other, some people become uncomfortable. And, you know, that's the timing with the story is that that's happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one reason why we're getting the Warborn story mixed in here. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's where, to me, I would have, if we were going to go with any story here, I would have gone with the Warborn story here mm-hmm. and had the horror story. It could still be in this time period, but it, it could just be its other book because right. the question about what is Starfleet was fascinating. And I, I love, there's some great quotes. One was, a peace is not the same as passivity. Mm-hmm. And then Kirk has this fantastic quote where he says, the answer is that there's no conflict between these goals. Because peace is the only thing worth fighting for. The act of destruction only serves a purpose if it brings about some net positive result. Uh, he said that the Arcturians realized that when they stopped using the warborn to fight one another 
and redefined your purpose as for the protection of Arcturus. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, again, the way in which thematically that plays to connect with what is Starfleet and how are we moving forward, I think is really fascinating because the goal of Starfleet is to promote peace. But, you know, I always kind of saw Starfleet as kind of being the axiom of... of, um, Teddy Roosevelt, which is, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick, you know, like uh, right, yeah. that that's kind of what Starfleet is doing, right? It it arms itself to protect itself, but at the same time, it it comes in peace. You know, it comes in exploration. And 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 where I never had a problem with Starfleet, you know, being part military is that they believe that they have something worth protecting and fighting for mm-hmm. right yeah um they believe that 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 the way of the federation the beliefs of the federation are worth protecting and fighting for and that's not that's not a bad thing well and if you go back to enterprise they started out thinking that we can just go out and explore and it didn't take them long to realize that no we have to be able to fight also because it's a dangerous galaxy. There are a lot of people out there. And again, who, uh, and there are a lot of people out there who don't think like we do and right. and want and would want to destroy us therefore because yeah. of that. Yeah. And bring that back to earth today, same situation, you know, I'm not in favor of big militaries personally, but I also know that if a country does not have the ability to defend itself, to fight if it needs to, it's not going to last very long because there are plenty right. of others who would happily take over. Unfortunately, that's how the world works. So so going back to the, the point of, you know, peace and pacifism are not one in the same, right? Right. Exactly. No, 100 yeah. percent. And and I think, you know, that's a really interesting thing that. You kind of this book is all about like understanding, um, and we have Dr. Janeth Lau who, and and what was fascinating is is to watch uh, Bennett tight tightrope walk this whole idea of like protests and almost like kind of like Twitter protests and and um, the fact that she doesn't necessarily completely understand the situation yeah. that she is against. She thinks she understands it, but she doesn't, mm-hmm. and to see the way in which Kirk brings her in on purpose to try and help explain exactly what they're doing, why they're doing it, and that they both come at this with open minds in some ways. And yet, in many ways, I I found her character fascinating because I I found her representing what we kind of see many times in, in our day and age, which is that she believes the warborn should be able to choose, Mm -hmm. but Basically, it seems like she wants them to choose her way because she believes that's the only right way. And so, like, what if the Warborn chose to fight? Would that be okay if they chose what you don't think would be the right thing? And so there's this really great ethical question in there. And in, and I think in many times, you know, what we see here is that Kirk is is basically saying we need actual knowledge other than assumed knowledge. Right. And yeah. that's how we can make good decisions. And for me, that was might be the best part of the book because it was so relevant to the world we live in. Yeah, no, exactly. It, these days, very often, as you say, people want there to be a choice. You know, they will fight for people to have a choice in a matter, but they really want people to choose one particular path, right? They don't actually want people to have a choice because if people choose the path that differs from the one that the person fighting for it wants, then that person would also be upset, right? So it's sort of like a kind of a, a false caring about an issue that we see often. And the assumed knowledge is a really great point. I mean, I just had last week, there was a, kind of a little bit of an uproar here in Japan about an issue that affects the foreign community. And even people within the foreign community, although I think they were people who had lived in Japan, some of them were people who had lived in Japan but don't live here now, they don't really know what's going on on the ground. 
And so they just assume a lot of knowledge that they don't have and also twist your words to fit their narrative in their position, right? So that happens a lot also and, you know, ties into what you're talking about here. And and I, I think I love the, what you said, you know, it's just you have the right to choose, but you only have the right to choose what I believe is right. Right. Yeah. You know, and 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 if we're going to give people the right to choose, then they need to be able to choose things that you might not think are correct. And so I I, I loved I love this whole section in the book and, and I just thought it was really good and it also tied in really well with, you know, Kirk has another fantastic quote and, and Bennett really does a great job with his speeches on progress. And this idea, he says, you know, progress often comes in small steps. Yes. And instead of rejecting the next step because it isn't large enough, we should take it and then yeah. use it as foundation to climb up to the next and then the next building momentum as we go. And it was one of the best things that I've read in so long because the the history, and this is why it tied so well back to what Ahura was going through, history, Right. The history of the world, if we know it, it teaches us that progress comes in small steps. You know, and it's the Chinese axiom, which is the the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Yeah. We can't expect that we can jump from point A to point Z. We have to go through every step. And I was just... Again, this this whole part of the story with the connection with Ahura and the Warborn, it was so strong thematically. Uh, and I thought Bennett was just really nailing, in, in many ways, how good Star Trek can be shining a mirror on our current situation and helping us see where we're right and where we might be wrong. Yeah. Well, that's where Star Trek is willing to comment on society in a way that isn't necessarily coming down on one side. And that line, yeah, that really stood out to me because it's spot on commentary of today's world where so many people are not willing to accept that one step of progress or two steps of progress. Like they want to make the entire jump all at once. And any landing point that is short of the ultimate goal is unacceptable. And is reason for outrage and tear down the people who are trying to make the progress. That happens so much uh, these days. But as Kirk says, you have to go one step at a time. You're not going to, in most cases, you're not going to get it all at once. Well, and and I mean, it's unreasonable to think that would even be possible. I mean. But many people it, believe it is these days. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that I think, again, the the book shows the reason for us to understand our history to mm. understand uh, how things actually work in reality right? right and 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 being very grounded in that reality and and again kirk is not being pragmatic here kirk is just being true to the way the right. the world actually works right. and i i think there's uh that realism it's it's it. it uh, Kirk is a realist. He's not a pragmatist, uh, and so yeah, and he's experienced, and, but he's also hopeful. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and he's he's not an ideologue either, right. right? Um, so I think that all of those things are what make Kirk such a wonderful character for us to be able to look up to, because in many ways he is kind of the best of what we kind of hope to be. And the beauty of Kirk in this book too is, is that he comes at all of these discussions with an open mind himself yeah, to be challenged, yeah. to be able to grow and not assume that he's just right. Right. And let's not forget, it's something that Kirk still struggles with for years after this. You get into Star Trek six and he says, you know, maybe history can overcome people like me. So yeah. he's well aware that maybe he should be able to change in advance more than he does, but yes. he's also realistic about the world. It's a tricky balance. You know, many people would say to you, like, 
so what? That's how the world works. It doesn't have to work that way. Let's stop doing it. Let's do this other thing. And that's great. And that's how you make those small steps that we're talking about. But you have to find a balance. You know, you can't you can't just throw everything out the window because you're not dealing with just yourself or a small group of people. You're dealing with the entire world. You're dealing with different cultures. Even within one culture, you're dealing with many viewpoints, different generations. It really takes time. So I think that you have to find a way of looking at the system, looking at how things work, seeing what you would like to change, and then being smart about how you approach things so that over time you can affect that change. And you might not be the person who carries the ball across the goal line. You might be the person who helps advance it, you know, past midfield. And then other people that you're working with, maybe younger people will eventually get it there. That kind of thing takes time. And again, it's a thinking that I feel is missing in the world today. I mean, I, absolutely. And I, I could not have, have said it better. I think you're 100% right on that. And and I think it's it's one of the, the hallmarks of this book. And so, I, Chris, I'm really fascinated um, to see just because of the discussion we've had, where you're going to come down on your ratings for living memory. Okay. Yeah, that that's interesting because... The the first time I read the book twice, so the first time I read the book, I gave it three out of five. And the second time I got through it, I decided to bump that up to four out of five. And the reason was primarily that I found the concept near the end, the uh, answer to the mystery of the vacuum flares and what was going on. I found that very interesting. But I really want to explore that more. So I'm I'm not like crazy thrilled with the book. I think it's filled with a lot of good ideas that are not explored to the extent they should be, as we've talked about. And I feel like I got what I needed to get in terms of fleshing out Uhura's character. And I feel like she followed a satisfying path forward and reuniting with her family and finding herself again. The idea of primordial life is super interesting to me. And I hope there's a future book that explores that because it only gets touched on at the end. And that's is one of my favorite uh, types of science fiction stories, let's say. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm right there with you. In that, um, I, I, you know, I was able to voice earlier just in my, my frustrations with the book itself, and and where I think that it falls short. And and there's, it's interesting because Bruce and I, I had recently talked about a book where I felt like very much the same way. It it felt like two stories that had been combined together that don't really need to be there. And and, and that's when we were talking about Rough Beasts of Empire. It just the, the story mm, yeah. did not connect well um together and th- i'm with you this 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 whole discussion that we end up having with ohura and the primordial life is fascinating and and i feel like what's interesting is, is though that most of the thematic elements that i love come from the other side of the story mm-hmm. and so i i do feel as though this just needed to be separate books and and therefore I will give this a three out of five because it's better than average. But for me, it's just above. And part of that is because I I think that the, the editing of the book needed to come in and say, we need to split this into two different stories. Um, yeah. I'm actually surprised that somebody didn't say that. And so um, I do. I, I think both sides of the story are great. I just wish they were on their own so they could really be. Uh, expounded upon and, and flushed out. Yeah. Yeah. That's where it's it's always interesting to find out the development side of novels when we talk to the authors, because sometimes we find out how those things came together and why they are the way they are. Well, Chris, it, it's always fun to be able to talk about a new Star Trek book. And it was such a blast to be able to do that with you, uh, especially since, you know, we've got 
Another new book that's going to be coming out next month, which I'm really excited to get to, is we're going to be in the TNG universe with Shadows Have Offended and uh, talking to Cassandra Clark. But before we get there, Chris, if people want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on, you know, where can they find you? Well, the best place to find me is Twitter. That's where I'm most active. My username is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That is my username everywhere on social media, but Twitter is where I actually interact on a daily basis throughout the day. So feel free to hit me up on there. Of course, you can also find me there in the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. And in terms of what I have going on, I mentioned at the top of the show that Larry and I have put out a couple of episodes of The Ready Room recently, including the one where we talked to Adil Hussein from Discovery, which was really interesting. And most of my time is still going into the magazine. It's quite a bear to deal with. I'm doing an audio version of the magazine now, though. So if you want to hear me ramble on about business topics, you can do that. You'll find the links to that on my Twitter account there for the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan. But it's fun to do. And I'm glad that I'm finally able to do that after many years of wanting to. So that's where most of my time is going these days. But I am trying to get back into Star Trek a bit more as time allows. So Matthew, when you're not helping Bones set up Jim Kirk on dates, where can people find you and see what you have going on? Well, when I'm not doing that, um, and when they're not secretly just going out on dates with me, uh, you could find me on Twitter uh, or any of the social media platforms, MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network doing the 602 Club, which is our whole other side of the network where we're talking about things beyond Star Trek uh, with all the fandoms we love. Of course, Snyder Cut's in that feed as well as John Mills and I did a short run show talking about all those things Zack Snyder directed. Uh, You can also find me on the third party network uh, talking about talking about two things. One, uh, I finished a series with Drea Kaufman where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. Uh, Again, that's Owl Post. It was so much fun. So hope you'll join us there. And then I'm also doing Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills, which is a Star Wars podcast. And every week we're talking about something fun in Star Wars. So I hope you'll join us there. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.